Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. As my longtime listeners know, if long time can describe the year I've had a show, I am a big proponent of open immigration and I've had numerous guests on to discuss it. But whenever I try to get somebody to talk to me about the economics of immigration, I'm inevitably told that I need to get today's guest. So it's a few months in the making, but I have him here now. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, author of numerous books and articles, including his latest book, You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformism. Professor Brian Kaplan, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited about this discussion. Are you an advocate of completely open borders? In the real world? Let's see, what's the right way of putting it? Um, almost every case. There are some examples where I say like that, where the consequences would be so bad that we shouldn't do it. They're very rare, but I'm not an absolutist. You know, it's interesting you said that because someone said to me the other day, yeah, you want open borders to the point where it's going to harm America. And, I, mm -hmm. and my, my point is, I don't think they harm America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a, it, he's reading his belief system into mm -hmm. my mind, basically. So one of the things that people talk about is if you have open borders, they're going to displace native workers. That mm -hmm. the effects on employment, you're going to end up with mass unemployment. Mm -hmm. You've, I, I'm guessing, have studied the data. Is mm -hmm. there any truth to this? What are the effects of immigration mm -hmm. on employment? So in the short run, maybe some slight effect. But here's the key thing. All of economic history goes against this. When tens of millions of women entered the workforce in the 50s, 60s, 70s, was this bad for the economy? Was it even bad for men? It's like, well, it definitely did not go permanently raise the unemployment rate of men. We can see this because our unemployment rate right now is rock bottom again. It is totally possible to have a large increase of people in the workforce without any rise in unemployment, never mind the huge increase in global population and national population that happened during this time. I would say the much more sensible complaint is not that it's causing unemployment, that it's reducing wages. This is another thing that's been studied in a lot of detail. People think that they understand it's got to work that way because they focus only on something like, what if a million new professors showed up? What will that do to professors' wages? The problem is they're not thinking about the fact that other people in the country are consumers of that same product. That means that you always need to be focused on what is the net effect it's not just, does an immigrant make it harder for you to get a good job, but also, are there immigrants who make your money more worthwhile because it buys more? And then say, yeah, all right, so there's good and bad effects. How does this all net out? And the answer is, this is very much like technological improvement, where, of course, some technology is bad for some workers, some immigration is bad for some workers, but the net effect of technology on workers is obviously overwhelmingly positive, why? Because the total production of humanity is increased and those goods have to go to somebody. And on average, the living standards of any individual depend primarily upon overall productivity. And the same thing goes for immigration, because just like with technology, the reason why people migrate is to increase their productivity. You go to get higher wages, and that means you're going to places where your productivity is higher from where it started, the net effect on total production then is positive and the same logic does apply. Happy to take questions on all of the sub questions that I may have raised in the process. Okay, so 
my guess is people are looking at this like all things remaining equal. If you have mm -hmm. a, a given type of job and more mm -hmm. applicants enter the workforce, mm -hmm. you, you're going to drive wages down or you're going mm -hmm. to lead to an increase in unemployment if, if the wages mm -hmm. you know, are. Yeah, just like tractors will cause unemployment and lower wages if that's the only thing that you're thinking about. Right. But, but I say, wait, for who? For who? Say, so, well, tractors might cause higher unemployment and lower wages for farm workers, but at the same time, it is increasing the abundance of food, which is enriching the entire rest of the population. And then you've got to say, huh, that's actually a lot harder. And it is. And, and I, I didn't already mention this, so I will. Uh, I am an economist. And if there's one lesson in economics that I would like everyone on earth to know, it is this. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. You don't need to know that much else other than that one principle. If you want your society to be rich, let its production be high. Maybe I should have had you come on to explain Say's law. <laughs> that would have been that would have been a good good talk. It's macro, so it's a little more complicated, actually. But yeah, the basics the basic point is correct. Okay, so you're not ending up with this decrease in wages. It's similar to like with tariffs, right? People say mm -hmm. you need to have tariffs to protect a, a given industry, but then everybody else suffers through higher yeah. prices. Right. Now, years ago- And, and again, I, it's one where it's like, well, so some lose, some gain. How do we net that out? How do we figure out the, the overall? And I said, well, when there is a reduction in, in the total goods and services in the economy, the average person has to be poor. And what do tariffs do? They reduce production. Right. In the same way that if you weren't allowed to leave your property, your production on your little strip of land would be rock bottom. Now, how about like entrepreneurship, small business ownership? Mm -hmm. How does immigration affect those things? Yeah, so it's true that immigrants are a lot more likely than non-immigrants to own their own businesses. The overall effect here, I would say, is more complicated than simple slogans because on the one hand, immigrants have been very involved in some of the most incredible entrepreneurial achievements. On the other hand, we do have a misguided glorification of small business. Most small businesses actually are a bad idea that someone who doesn't really know what they're doing and doesn't really know how to run a business and doesn't even have an idea about what they're going to do differently, who just thinks it's cool. The you know, If you talk to a friend who says, I'm going to start my own business, normally your best thing as a friend is to say, don't, because it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> you're going to lose all your savings. Um, and that's a lot of what's going on with all small business is people are just overconfident. Restaurants are the most famous example here. Uh, but the general point of immigrants are more entrepreneurial and entrepreneurship overall is good for society is correct, but it's important not to reify or glamorize small business, especially because it's got such a great glow. But if you really look at what's going on, a lot of it is just misguided people throwing their lives away. Milton Friedman famously said that you can't have both open borders and a welfare mm -hmm. state. The mm -hmm. implication being that these immigrants are going to all flock here to get mm -hmm. free goodies, right? Mm -hmm. And people often will complain about that, that they're coming here and they're, they're sapping government resources. Mm -hmm. Is there any truth to that? The answer is it depends upon the numbers and we've got to do what Milton strangely didn't do, which is math. To be fair, Milton gave this totally off the cuff in an informal interview. And in the same interview, when he's asked, well, how about you let immigrants in and don't let them be eligible for benefits? Then he's, he actually said, the great Milton Friedman said, I haven't thought about that much. I'm like, oh my God, Milton hadn't thought about it very much. Like what in the world? I can't believe that Milton hadn't thought about it. That's what he said. Any case, 
The thing that you do need to do is remember immigrants do two things. They use government services and they pay taxes. Every person pretty much without exception is going to do both. Even if all you do is go and buy a beer at your convenience store, there's going to be sales taxes. Right. So the question is, what does that net effect look like? Almost everyone that I've ever talked to, whether they're pro or anti-immigration, guess how they resolve this complex mathematical question? With philosophy. I'll just do some philosophy to figure <laughs> out what the, what the answers are. Like, have you ever solved a regular math problem using <laughs> philosophy? I hope not because it doesn't work. To think that you're going to solve this highly emotional, politicized, ideological question using philosophy is just asinine, and yet almost everybody does it. I will raise my hand and say I am one of those rare people that has said I'm not going to use philosophy to solve this. I'm going to look at numbers. That's step one. It's a big improvement over what normal people do. Step two is, well, whose numbers are you going to trust? Do you go and find the people that agree with your conclusion and then repeat what they say as if it's fact? That sucks. That's what <laughs> that is what deliberately deceptive or self-deceiving people do. Instead, you want to say, well, the people say who just don't have any dog in the fight, who are just pure, boring quants. And that's what I try to rely upon. That's really what I try to do for any quantitative question. You don't want to go and find an ideologue who does math. You want to find a mathematician who looks at the world anyway, or a statistician. So uh, in my book, I rely heavily upon two reports from the National Academy of Sciences. They definitely seem to fall under the boring quant rule, which is good for this purpose. The results are complicated. I go over them in a lot of detail. And to be fair, I made one mistake in my book and I wrote a correction. So that should be noted. But in any case, uh, main things they find. First of all, the current average immigrant is a net taxpayer to the United States. So in the United States, current immigrants are, you know, the immigrants we get are on average, the new ones are net taxpayers. That means that on average, they are paying more in taxes, they are using services. Second of all, if you go and just break it down by all different kinds of immigrants, what you see is that there's really two where the taxes they pay are currently less than the services they use. So one of them would be high school dropouts. So high school dropouts do actually seem to use more in services than they pay in taxes. And then the other group are the elderly. So the elderly are also going to use more services they pay in taxes. That does then leave us the large majority of immigrants. And these days, actually, most human beings on earth that will not fit into the negative categories. Uh, in my book, I then actually get to have a conversation with Milton Friedman, who is just drawn as a cartoon character. And in there, he says, well, all right, fine. Then let's let everybody accept those groups. And that's where I do challenge them. I say, well, wouldn't the same logic apply for births? Would you say that we can't have free reproduction in a welfare state? Like, well, that's different. Is it though? It's the same principle. Are there not some people that are statistically likely to become a burden on the welfare state? You'd have to be pretty silly not to think so. And yet this is one where you say, look, it's one thing to let in a ton of people where almost all of them are going to be a burden and it's just going to be a crushing affect our society. It's another one to say we have a moral principle and we're not going to go and break it just because there are five or 10% exceptions. We're just going to go and say that everyone can come. And if there is a problem, then let us go and fix the welfare state rather than saying that you are not allowed to come because we've got these bad policies. Okay. So long-term mass immigration doesn't lead to unemployment. Long-term mass immigration doesn't lead to lower wages. It leads to higher wages because higher living standards for more production. 
But the point of money is to spend it. Yes. You know, like and all those immigrant restaurants, every time you've ever hired an immigrant to help you. Right? And by the way, this is also one where people tend to think about there just being one thing called labor. Here's the reality. There are millions of different occupations. They were related, and yet many of them only distantly so. I am an economics professor. We let in a pile of economics professors, then that's going to be bad for me. Hmm. On the other hand, when we let in Afghan restaurateurs, there's no way they're going to be competing with me. All they're going to do is compete for my money. And that's just what every person should want is for there to be new immigrants competing for their money by offering them services they want. Okay. And it's also seems largely a myth that immigrants are saps on the system because mm -hmm. in reality, they're paying in more taxes than what they're taking out. But right. on, a, on average, and I, I never want to oversell. Actually, when I was writing my book a couple of times, my editor said, well, but this sounds like it's an argument against immigration. I said, yeah, because not all the evidence goes my way because it's reality. Right. Well, we'll so see. in reality, all the evidence doesn't go your way. And if you think so, then no one should trust you. And that's the type of, of situation. Like for me, when, when I'm a natural rights guy. Mm -hmm. So I think that people have a right to, to cross borders. Now, I would admit some exceptions. If you know somebody's carrying a plague or mm -hmm. if they're coming from a country we're at war with. Mm -hmm. So if, if the math is, is, you know, it's not harmful overall, you, mm -hmm. it can go, you know, there's certain areas where it can go either way. Then I think philosophy can play a good role. Mm -hmm. Because like you said earlier, we have a moral principle, like in, in the mm -hmm. case when you're talking to Milton Friedman. Mm -hmm. But and this is a it's a little outside of economics but not not really another argument against open immigration is that criminals are just flocking mm -hmm. into the country mm -hmm. what are what are the the rates amongst these immigrants when it comes to crime right uh this is one where we got good data for the united states not perfect but the main punchline is that the average immigrant has a lower crime rate than the average american for legal immigrants, it's way less. And for illegal immigrants, it's roughly comparable. Uh, this is not true in most European countries where immigrants do have higher crime rates there. It's, again, important to realize it's not night and day, but still, it is true that uh, immigrants in Europe generally have higher crime rates. The best way of thinking about it is that Particularly for violent crime, Americans have high violent crime. Most European most European countries have low violent crime, and then immigrants are somewhere in between. You know, along these lines, it's also worth pointing out that men have something like ten times the violent crime rate of women, and yet almost no one wants to take any preemptive action against the average male. And thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for you and me, right? Yes. <laughs> Okay, so they're not and young males. You're the real day. You're the real danger, man. Yeah, I'm younger. Fifty-two year old guys, we're safe. <laughs> These, uh, I heard, I read, I didn't hear it. I read it on, I think, Twitter the other day, where someone made the claim, uh, a popular in one of these influencers, that the Chinese are deliberately sending over here young fighting age men, and it so that it's comparable <laughs> to an invasion. Now that to me is ridiculous, but. Yes. Is there a, a, a legitimate chance? And by legitimate chance, I don't mean when you're doing mathematical equations, you say, yes, this is within the realm of, of possibility. It's, right. it's the, I mean, is it statistically significant yes. Yes. that people are going to come over here, terrorists or yeah. soldiers from other countries, plants, that sort of thing? Yeah. So East Asians, violent crime rates in the United States are so low, they can barely even be measured. So that one is completely ludicrous. 
it does vary by country. So there are some countries that have higher crime rates, some that have lower crime rates. The U.S. is high for first world country, but there's plenty of poor countries that are worse. Again, I would just go back to the overall numbers and say, well, here's what we know, namely that even illegal immigrants have crime rates that are roughly comparable to that of U.S. natives. If you think that's okay, then there's, shouldn't, you shouldn't have any general complaint about immigrants. Um, there's also one where if you say, look, no, 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 like I don't want anyone with the average crime rate of Americans. Like, well, then maybe you should think about changing your crime policies rather than stopping immigration, which is really irrelevant to what we're talking about. Good point. Now, there are some anti-immigration people who just make the argument of, look, if one immigrant ever commits one crime, that's a good enough reason to never let them in. Like in that case, uh, you're right. If you let in a million people, it would be a miracle if none of them committed right. crimes. But you're out of your mind if that's your standard. What a completely ridiculous standard. It's one where you'd look at a baby and say, well, prove he's not going to be a criminal. All right, we don't want him. Now, in your book, I, if I had to characterize your, your style of thinking, and if I'm wrong, by all means, tell mm -hmm. me. I would say that you're fact and logic based. Mm -hmm. You don't get caught up in the moment mm -hmm. and you don't give in to the mob, what, what everybody else is thinking. You kind of stay even, think rationally. Mm -hmm. First of all, how did you come about, if, if I'm right, how did you come about that style of thinking? Because it's so foreign to, you know, almost everywhere else you go. I mean, it's a hilarious question when you think about it, because to imagine there'd be someone who would say, oh, no, that's not me. <laughs> like, if that's not you, why are you writing? Why are you in the world of ideas? That's the only kind of person that should be talking. Really? Like, how did I come to it? I'd say that I've always had a Vulcan streak in me. I've always liked just sticking to facts and logic. Uh, since this podcast is called The Rational Egoist, I probably got a big boost there from reading Ayn Rand, not that she was, in fact, any model of rationality herself, but definitely an ideal that she put forward. And then from there, I did wind up reading a lot of other sources on how do you really want, you know, or how do you, how do you really need to think in order to think rationally? Probably the biggest single influence on me is Phil Tetlock, political psychologist, his books, Expert Political Judgment, uh, How Good Is It, How Can We Know? And then his, especially his book, Super Forecasting, where he actually runs tournaments on prediction and sees what are the predictors of doing well in these prediction tournaments. A lot of it, of course, starts with you don't get to self-assess whether you're right or wrong after the fact. You've got to pre-commit to what is the standard. One thing that he found in his book, Expert Political Judgment, is that he asked people in the 80s, so will the Soviet Union collapse by the year 2000? And then a few people said yes, most people said no. And when he went and asked them after the fall, you know, question one is, so do you remember what you predicted? A lot of people just changed their memory to have been right all along. So that's step one, don't do that. But then a lot of other people said, well, look, my mistake wasn't my fault. My mistake, it was just totally unpredictable. But he noted, no one who got it right ever said they got lucky. People got it wrong, so they're unlucky. People got it right, never said they were lucky. Suspicious. All right, so that's another example. In super forecasting, he goes into a lot of other details. Like one major rule for getting things right is using base rates. Whenever you're saying, well, how likely is something? Well, don't just focus on that one thing. Say, well, in general, how common is this thing? So when someone says, how likely is that immigrant to commit a crime? It's like, well, let's start with 
what's the general propensity to crime of humans in this country? And then from there, say, well, this person's from a higher crime country, let's adjust it upwards. They're older, let's adjust it downwards. They're male, let's adjust it upwards again. These are the kind of things to do. Say probably a lot of my attitude comes from having Catholicism rammed down, rammed down my throat when I was a kid and just not liking their attitude. It's like, why can't I ask questions? Why are you getting mad at me for just wondering what's going on? Why is it that it's a sin to have doubt? So that was some of the early parts uh, in just in terms of my origin story. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that I, when five years old, I was any model of, of rationality or anything like that, but still, this has always had a lot of appeal to me. Probably you could also say that I've just got this internalized sense of pride. Like Brian Kaplan can't stoop to these levels. Uh, <laughs> can't stoop. You know, you know, you know, if you've ever heard of Charles de Gaulle, he's one of these jerks that talked about himself in the third person. You know, de Gaulle cannot do this. De Gaulle must do that. Like Jimmy on Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe I have a little bit of de Gaulle in me where I'm so like, I, I cannot fall short of my best. Uh, you know, I'll say that with some irony. It's precisely when you think you can't fall short of your best that you do. You said something that I found interesting, and I don't know if it applies exactly, but it reminds me of it. When you said you can't be the judge in your own predictions to see if they come true. Because I'll frequently yeah. run across things on social media that will say mm -hmm. another conspiracy theory proved correct. And I tell them you're only proven correct within your own circle. Yes, which isn't hard to do. You guys make a prediction, say something, and then one of you says it's true. And then you all say, look, we know it's true. That's mm -hmm. not how you yeah. do things. There's a um, a guy running for uh, president for the Libertarian Party, uh, Mike Rechtenwald. So mm -hmm. he posts this morning that the CIA arranged to have the Nord Stream pipeline blown up. Mm -hmm. I said, what is your proof for that statement? He responds with one article and I by Seymour Hersh. And I'm like, okay, so you found a guy that says what you want to believe, and now he's authoritative. Mm -hmm. I could go find 15 sources that say something else, but then of course you're gonna say they're biased or they're this or they're that, they're they're in the tank, they're part of the establishment. I know, I don't know, I don't know that you're a conspiracy theory expert or anything, but I'm sure you've come across that. Style. I know a lot more than most people, but I'm not that yeah. into it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but like, well, how do you, when there's so many people in society, when that's their method, even if it's not that extreme to mm -hmm. where they're conspiracy theorists, but when the confirmation bias is so high, like, do you have any hope for living in a more rational society? I guess that's, that's the best way I can ask mm -hmm. it. So I thought you were going to ask, is there any way of improving things? And for that, I've got an answer, which is betting. Okay, that's better. Betting. That's better. People, no matter how crazy, when you propose a clear-cut bet, normally the crazy people run for the hills. You are not going to be able to go and get people to trade to, to bet their house against your dime, even though they say it's absolutely certain and all the evidence is on my side. Because that's when people realize, well, wait a second. Hmm, I don't really have that much to go on here and I can't really prove anything. I mean, so one thing that people do is just have really low standards and, but you know, other times, but more often they'll just say, okay, well, like now that you make it that specific, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. I remember there was the commentator, John Bethoritz about 10 years ago, he said the nuclear deal, the rent effectively ensures Iran will be a nuclear power in 10 years. 
And I just said, okay, fine, let's bet it 10 to one. Did he like, take if, it? If, if you're no, no. Instead, he said, How about even odds? And um, yeah, you're the one that said it effectively insures. The only thing that I'm confident of is that you don't know much. So uh, Tetlock has these two phrases of vague verbiage and self-scoring. See, well, you often get things like someone saying, look, immigrants are are, will destroy Europe. And then they post a story about one immigrant killed someone and say, see, that's proof. It's like, that's proof? One person killed one person on a continent? No, that's not Oh, proof. yeah, that drives me crazy. Like, like, you would need to go and come up with some standard of you know, like 100,000 murders. Right, that would sound, or at least we're getting in the ballpark, and over what time period. It's often when someone will give a prediction and they give no date stamp on it. It's like, that's when you know that what they're saying is ridiculous. Because, like, eventually, there's going to, World War III is coming. When? I don't know. All right, well, in that case, I'm going to say it's true with near 100% probability because humanity's going to go on for a long time, and eventually there'll be something that we call the Third World War. Hopefully, it won't be for a thousand years, but be totally shocking if it never happened. In fact, we, I mean, the best way for World War III to never happen would be if humanity went extinct of something else, actually. Were you influenced by Julian Simon at all with that, with the yeah. betting stuff? I, I thought you might be, because I just remember him mm. saying over and over again, when all else fails, I just put up or shut up. Look, I'm tired of this. <laughs> I am very influenced by Julian Simon, but not so much in the betting. My real inspiration there is my best friend, Robin Hansen. When we hired him in 1999, I didn't think about betting at all and just hanging out with him totally transformed me. And now I'm a huge better and I've got a large number of public bets. Right now, I'm still at 23 for 23 out of public bets that have come to fruition. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. I've got a couple that I think I'm likely to lose in the next 10 years, but a lot more that I'm going to win. I'm not omniscient, but still... It is a good way to not just show other people that you know something, but to discipline yourself, to look in the mirror and say, do I really know what I'm talking about here? In what ways were you in influenced by Julian Simon? Because I got to tell you, when mm -hmm. I read his book, The Ultimate Resource 2, mm -hmm. it blew me away. Oh, and yeah. I, ha I had a friend of mine uh, that was a, a virtual socialist at the time. Mm -hmm. And I told him he was, you know, environmentalist, all that. And I said, here, I want you to do two things. Take this book and this book. And I gave him an almanac and I gave him the ultimate resource too. I said, verify everything he says, just check it. And he was blown away. He came mm -hmm. back and he said, uh, this guy's completely destroyed my, <laughs> my worldview. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, you know, a lot of, so let's see. Probably the single biggest effect of Julian Simon on me was to make me very pro-population. That's something that a lot of people miss, but that really is the heart of Julian Simon's view. It's not merely that the world's getting better and better, but he's got a particular story about why, which is human population. The human mind is the ultimate resource. More minds equals more, pro more creativity equals a better long-run future. It's because of Julian Simon that I have become very into natalism, having more kids, the value for not only humanity, but for yourself of having a large family. I've got four kids, or I say, say only four, wish I had more. That is one of the big, anyway, Julian Simon was one of the main influences there that just got me thinking about what it means for yourself and for the world to create life. I will say, I do have another book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, which as far as I know, is the only thing I've ever written that's actually made much difference in the world. So I do know there are hundreds of people who say they have kids because of that book. So I, through my words, have caused the existence of hundreds of extra people. 
if you do a usual economist thing of saying every life's worth 10 million bucks, then that book created billions of dollars worth of value. Nothing else that I've done is even remotely close in terms of changing the world because that was a self-help book, really. Whereas all the other stuff, I'd have to convince a lot more people. And as you were suggesting, it's super hard to convince many people. It, it Often really when I'm talking is. to students, I say, yes. Has anyone here ever changed the mind of a country? Yeah, mm -hmm. me either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm not going to ask you about this in particular, but I, I want to preface what I'm going to say. You're, you're a, 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 in addition to being a, a famous economist a, into betting and everything, you're also a well-known anarcho-capitalist. I don't mm -hmm. want to have you defending that right, right mm -hmm. now. What I want to ask you is this. There's a new trend uh, among some ANCAPs Okay. They're they're anti-immigration mm -hmm. and they try to tie the two together. And I'm just curious, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts yeah. on that? It just seems so illogical yeah. to me. Yes. Yeah, they're out of their minds. This is not new, actually. Um, so the people at the Mises Institute, they were already into this by the year 1993. So we're in year 31 or 32. Okay. The actual origin story is they started hanging out with the Chronicles people and wanted to form one of Murray Rothbard's many pre-doomed alliances. They were anti-immigration and then they picked it up and then they came up with these rationalizations. Here is the story, which you'll get out of someone like Hans Norman Hoppe or other people or other people who are into this. It's like, well, you see, uh, this is our country and so it should be up to the country to decide whether or not people are allowed in. In the same way, you know, you would like, it's not like someone's just allowed to move into your house without your consent. Therefore, people shouldn't be allowed to move into a country without the consent of the current inhabitants. It's like, hmm, so let's generalize this. You can't set a church, set up a church in my house without my consent. So you shouldn't be able to set up a church in a country without the consent of the people of that country. You can't have a baby in my house without my consent. So you shouldn't be able to have a baby in our country without the consent of the people. What is going on here? What's going on is that they are accepting the idea that countries are the collective property of their inhabitants. And what do we call that philosophy? Collectivism. Socialism. Oh, socialism. Oh, socialism. Right. The idea that the country collectively belongs to its inhabitants, that's socialism, obviously. And the, the fact that they only apply this to this very one case where they are trying to weasel out of the obvious implications of their theory just shows us how bad of an argument it is. Sometimes they'll say, well, look, private owners will be selective and we've got discrimination laws which are stopping it, blah, blah, blah. All right, here's the thing. It is true that discrimination laws have some important effects in our economy, but almost all those effects are at the level of hiring. They're not at the level of letting in consumers into your business. How do we know this? Because even though it would be illegal for a mall to say, for example, we don't let any black teenagers in here and they would get they would they would get in trouble, obviously. But there are so many easy ways around the law and businesses barely lift a finger to do them. Like what would you do? How about a dress code? It is totally legal to have a dress code in America, other than a few restaurants that I never want to go to. Almost none of them do. Why? Because they don't want to lose customers. Normally, businesses are happy to take anybody's money. They are not looking for ways to weasel out of letting in customers. So yeah, while in principle, you might go and say that this is something somehow government is forcing integration. Say it's like there's a little bit of forced integration, but there's a lot of forced segregation by way of immigration restrictions. Again, it's a desperate effort to rationalize something that people pretty obviously want for other reasons. Now, by the way, I will say that the libertarians who 
accept that they are making a they are violating the principle, but just say the consequences of immigration are so bad that we shouldn't do it. That's a view that I respect, and that's a view that I spend most of my book trying to answer. Well, it's an yeah. honest position. Yeah. Yes. So you know, say, look, yes, I know it violates the principle, but in this case, it's going to be so devastating. And there's actually even a few cases where I would agree. So I will say, look, we actually know of two countries that were brought to civil war by Palestinian immigration, Jordan and Lebanon, both. Right. And what's going on? Well, it's because they were they became the the. The, refuge, the Palestinian refugees became such a large percentage of the population. They had such a terrible agenda of what they wanted to do that it really did cause civil war. I would be totally happy to bring every Palestinian in the world to the United States because here they would be such a tiny percentage of the population. They would not have a, a prayer's chance in hell or snowball's chance in hell of changing policy very much. And it would just forever end the issue. And I love forever ending issues. You know, for a good quarter of a century, I called myself a, a libertarian. And most of that time I was incarcerated. But when I got out after seeing, and I was, I actually- You, you were literally incarcerated? For, for 25 years. Yeah, I thought you knew that. How old are you? 47. Wow, you, well, you look great for your age. I have no well, idea. Well, thank oh, you. Wow. Yeah, I spent Terrible. I, it was 25 years uh, in prison. I, so. I assume unjustly. No, no, it was very justly. Oh my God. Very justly. Right. I just did a lot of work while I was incarcerated to uh, amend and become a better human being. All right. Well, so a you. couple a couple months out, I actually became the spokesperson for the Connecticut Libertarian Party. Mm -hmm. And I called myself, I'm an, you know, I'm an objectivist uh, philosophically, but I didn't see a conflict. Mm -hmm. A couple months out here and seeing the stuff that comes out of the Mises Caucus people, and I, I've stopped calling myself a libertarian. Mm -hmm. I just don't mm -hmm. want to be associated with that. Oh, you know, there's this longstanding small L versus large L libertarian. I, I'm aware. Yeah, yes. I, I know yes. about that. But it yes. was, it's just... I mean, libertarian no Party is so small, vast majority of people call themselves <laughs> yeah. that, don't know the party exists, much less identify with it. Yeah, I actually have been in uh, quite the kerfuffle online today with dave smith and his followers dave smith ah. said that tucker carlson is a hero <laughs> and i'm just like no he's not a hero mm -hmm. so we ended up arguing uh, yeah. all day he's a guy who's been really cool to me that doesn't make you a hero but <laughs> yeah. yeah but I'll, I'll confess i do have this human failing that i like people who are nice to me <laughs> well yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't make them heroes yeah no right, of course right. yeah Okay, so you didn't fall. You didn't fall into a frenzy after the 9-11 attacks. You didn't fall into a frenzy in 2008. I'm guessing at the whole riot at the Capitol in 2016, you, you didn't fall into a frenzy. What? what I, I was near the Texas Capitol at the time, but nothing was happening there. Just coincidence. So what do you think that people are in a frenzy about right now that they're just wrong about? If, a couple mm -hmm. things, if you got some, that they're mm -hmm. just wrong. Hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, fortunately, after COVID, we haven't had another really big moral panic yet. In terms of what's the closest thing, I don't like to just dodge a question. Hmm. I mean, honestly, probably the current really big one is just Israel-Palestine. There are some people who think that the Palestinians are the most oppressed people in the world and there's a genocide going on against them. And there's other people thinking that they are a moral threat to all Western civilization. And I think the real story is this is a small regional conflict, which is of great concern to the people right there, but it is not something that has much effect on the whole world. 
That's actually a good answer. Okay. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked? Hmm. Well, I mean, we've got my new book, uh, You Will Not Stampede Me. We're going to do that. Uh, I, I asked you a little about it, but we can go through the whole thing yeah. if you want. Yeah, let's do uh, it. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. All right. Uh, uh, that's where I got the information about you not caving to the to the uh, trends. Yes. You also talked in there about a lone collectivist, mm -hmm. uh, like the. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I forgot exactly how you put it yes. now, but how, you know, what if you're a collectivist, but there's no other collectivists? <laughs> you know, what what do you do? <laughs> right. I mean, it's pretty weird, but when you meet people who say they're communitarians or socialists or nationalists, often they're very isolated. You meet just the lone socialist who said, "Look, we need to have communities." Like, you don't even have community with any with other socialists. What are you talking about? You're just one weird loner. Same thing, of course, with people who say, like, I, you know, I, I'm a white nationalist and like, well, you don't even like other white people. What are you talking about? So like, this just seems like you have some fantasy about there being some great society to be part of it, but you aren't even able to go and get along with a few people in your immediate vicinity. So this is odd. Right. You would, so I say, look, I can understand if you're a normal person being a communitarian, because then it's like, let's go and take the thing that I am and that most people are, and let's make it the main thing to be and be, talk about it and be really cool about it. All right. At least it makes, I can kind of understand that. But when someone who is obviously in a tiny friend starts saying, talking about the wonder of community, that's where I just say it really does not make any sense at all. And my best story about it is that they are daydreaming about some fantasy world where their tiny fringe view becomes the mainstream view. And combined, of course, with if I could get over the top, if we could get in power, I could make everybody else pretend to agree with me, which is what actual <laughs> communitarian societies are about. You know, even Saudi Arabia, when they do real anonymous surveys, religiosity, you get about 20% of people to saying, like, I'm not into this at all. Like, I'm not even Muslim. And it's like in Saudi Arabia, there's one in five adults is just secretly saying, like, completely made up <laughs> fairy tales, pressing me. It's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. You wrote what I thought was a, a brilliant Socratic dialogue, an actual Socratic dialogue between mm -hmm. Socrates and the, I want to say yeah. Glocken. Uh, He's I'm a good character. And you did a great job of really, I mean, it was as if I was reading Plato with, with, with Socrates, the way oh, he wow. was. But, um, and he utterly destroyed the idea of, you know, mask wearing, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> but I don't want you to make the argument you made. What I want to know is, how do you think up that that type of a chapter? All your chapters in, in these books, they're based on, on pieces you've written. And they're very- In fact, they are pieces I've written. These are yeah. collections of my- Best essays. I did about 2,000 essays over the course, or more actually, over the course of 20 years. And I just said, well, so many, most of them are never going to be read by anybody again. Who's going to go through my archives? Why don't I go and pick out the 5% best of the best and then put them into new books in the hopes that people will actually read them? Where do you get the, like the, the Socrates thing? Like, how mm -hmm. do you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the, the words that I want to convey. I'm going to put them into the mouth of Socrates in the course of a Socratic dialogue. Like, where do these ideas come from? Do you deliberately, I guess what I'm asking is, are you deliberately looking for different ways to address problems that are unique uh, or, or is it just an automatic sort of thing that comes about? 
Let's see. I think usually I write a Socratic dialogue when I've been having conversations with people that I know, and I just feel like the conversation is going in circles, or I can't, I just somehow can't make the actual person have the conversation I want them to have. And then when you write the dialogue, it's like, no, it's going to happen the way it should happen. Right. So it's obviously kind of cheating. And yet there is an art to it, which is you've got to make the other person make some reasonable points, or at least sound reasonable. You want for the person that doesn't already agree with you, even if they're not as against you as the person you argue with, to say, yeah, this person's being represented fairly. And then well, how do, what do you say in response to that? In terms of where I get ideas, honestly, a lot of times ideas just come to me and I have a giant cue. When I get an idea, I desperately try to write it down because I, I lose ideas, ideas that I consider good. I just forget about them unless I get them written down. Every now and then I'll write down a title. I think it's enough. And then I come back six months later. Like, I don't even know what this is about, but it was... And I could have lost a good idea. In terms of what helps me to be creative, a big part of it is just iconoclasm. If you're willing to say things that are really unpopular, you will discover there's a lot of pretty obvious things to say that haven't been said by others because people are just either too scared to say things that are unpopular or they don't even walk down the corridor of unpopular things to see what is on the shelves there. So that for me is a very big part of it is just the iconoclasm. Uh, probably another part is I, I do have just a big imagination. It isn't just limited to my nonfiction. I love coming up with stories. I'm really big into role-playing games. I've written hundreds of stories. And when I write stories, I always try, you know, these are for games. So they like it's a story where there's a basic plot, but then the players have to be able to go and change the story in order to make it fun so that there's something for them to do. But still, whenever I'm writing a story, I'll usually start with a genre. But then I said, well, yeah, what's never been done before? What's never been done? Uh, so, for example, I so I want to write a dystopian story. It's like, well, we got a lot of dystopias. What hasn't been done? And I said, hmm, how about one based upon B.F. Skinner? B.F. Skinner's behaviorism. I'm like, yeah, and that fits in because he was a big environmentalist too. So it'll be an environmentalist dystopia. He was anti-population. It'll be an anti-population dystopia. And once I start going down there, like, then what are the characters going to be? Well, characters are obviously going to have to be people that are going to change this utopia, this dystopia, challenge it somehow. But then it also needs to be one where there's huge obstacles. That's part of a dystopia. Obstacles. That's part of a dystopia. Is it's really hard to change. And, and I end, I wound up writing this game called Control Group, uh, which is probably one of the most ambitious ones I've ever done. But I've written so many stories. I've got one called Mumbai Mongoose Mob, where you play a team of Indian counter-terrorist agents. Um, this kind of stuff really is very fun for me. It's also why I like doing graphic novels is because it engages visual imagination. It's not just making the arguments. It's, well, what images could I use to go and make the point to suck the reader into the argument? It is like shooting a documentary with an unlimited budget, really, once you can draw things. Now, you, there's essays in this, your, your latest book that go mm -hmm. back to, I think, 2005. I remember yeah, that's saying, right. Right. So that That's you're talking almost 20 years. Any have you had any considerable changes in mm -hmm. the in your beliefs about things or in your opinions mm -hmm. that either in that that are that you wrote about in the book or or elsewhere in the course mm -hmm. of that time? Like anything that you just said, wow, you know, I was really wrong about that. Not mm -hmm. not a specific issue, I don't mean, but like just uh, a way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. The 
self-serving answer would be, oh yeah, like I've learned so much. <laughs> the honest answer is I've learned a lot of specific things. I'm not going to claim that I've had any huge changes in my views on anything. Really, every time I read a book, I learn an immense amount about that subject. The kinds of things that I have learned would be like this. And when I wrote the case against education, I knew that there were going to be some people saying, well, we all know that richer countries have more education. So obviously education causes growth. And I figured I was going to have to go and say, look, that's reverse causation. It's not that education makes you rich, that when you're rich, you get education. What I learned when I was writing the book was that actually among the totally boring quantitative macroeconomists work on this issue, they themselves have a lot of trouble confirming that education causes growth. I was quite shocked by that. I thought I was going to have to go and say, sure, this is the evidence, but the evidence doesn't mean what people think. After I read all the papers there, I'm like, whoa, I've got to totally change my story mm -hmm. because it's just not even factually true that most researchers work on this think that they find a big effect of education on national economic growth. Really? So that's, yeah. That's, See, you know, so yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of papers where they say, well, look, the numbers keep coming out the wrong way. How can we fix the problem? And now like, if you read my book, I've got quotes from people where the motivated reasoning is right on their sleeve. And they say, look, this data is better because it gives the answer that we know to be true, which is that education is great for growth. So that's something that I've learned. I've learned a lot of things like that, where I just read more about a subject and I discovered, oh, what I thought would be the research consensus, not even the research consensus. Um, so there's things like that. Let's see. Um, like, you know, on immigration, for example, uh, in the book, I talk about the political views of natives versus non-natives. I've been hearing for a long time about immigrants being statist, but normally the people that say that do not even try to demonstrate it. They just make it up. I actually did the work for them. And what I found is they're not totally wrong. Immigrants are more statist. Are they I, really? Yes. It's, but the key thing is it's not by a lot. They are marginally more statist. Than your average. Yes. Than the, than, the, than the average native owned person really on almost everything except for immigration itself. That was one of the facts that my editor said, why are you even admitting that? Because like, it's true. And I'm not here to go and just tell people what makes my case easier. I'm not a freaking lawyer. I'm a scholar. I'm not trying to win a case, I'm trying to get to the bottom of things. That actually brings me to my next question. You could get to the bottom things all on your own. You don't need to write. What is the purpose of your writing? Like, why? What is the purpose of putting this book together? Don't you? You will not stampede me. Yeah. Why did you do it? Like, why did you come and say, you know what? I'm going to put this in a book that's for people to read. My colleague uh, Richard Wagner actually has a slogan, which is that writing is thinking, and I think there's a lot to that. Actually, very often when you start to write, you've got writer's block, and the reason is you don't really understand your own view nearly as well as you thought. And in the process of putting those sentences down, often painfully and slowly and questioning, like, well, I'm going, I want to write that sentence. Is that sentence true? That is how you learn. When I'm writing an essay, normally that's one where I've already got it worked out in my head. But when I'm writing a book, that's a much bigger struggle and I am learning as I go. Uh, for something like this, obviously, since it's a collection of old essays, then the main thing I'm just learning is really at the meta level, what, have I, what was I doing for the last 20 years anyway? What was I even talking about? I went through and made this big spreadsheet of my 5% or so famous uh, favorite things that I ever wrote. And then I just sat around moving things around in the cells to try to come up with eight books of essays. 
And that's when I realized, well, I've got about an eighth of my best stuff is on nonconformism. So there should be a book on nonconformism. What I'm trying to do about this is I think this stuff is good. I think it's worth worth reading. I'm trying to come out to package it in a format so that more people that would enjoy it do read it. Uh, some of it, especially for these books of essays, I think of it as they call in showbiz, fan service. I've got people that like my stuff, but they're not going to read everything that I've ever written. I go and make a little bit of extra effort to do some of the legwork so that they then get to enjoy more of the work. I'm happy to do it. So I get a lot of joy in my life just from talking to people who like what I've done and want to ask questions about it. So this incredible privilege to have, you know, to be able to write and then have anybody care. You know, if you had told me about this when I was in high school, I just would have been so amazed. So I, I mean, in my mind, I had all this great stuff, but hardly anyone to share it with. Nobody cared. If I had been around today, it's the ego trip I'd be on to have 10 readers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I, I've got 10 people reading me. That's incredible. You know, you don't have anybody reading you. Now it's a little, you have a sub stack with 10,000 people. And it's like, oh man, that's barely anybody. But it's nice. I mean, one of the great joys of my life is I can go to almost any city in the world and just say, I'm going to be here. Anyone want to meet up? And a few people do. That's, that's pretty great. I got to admit I want, I want to ask you something a little outside the book. It's a one, one, one name answer. In your view, who's the greatest economist that ever lived? Yes, greatest economist of all time, the goats. My colleague Tyler Cowan has a AI book about this. I'm just going to say Milton Friedman. Really, you're going to go with Friedman? Yes, I'm Milton Friedman. Now he's my very favorite. He combines having made a lot of progress on specific economic issues with being someone that looks at the big picture and also goes and explains the subject to a much broader audience, someone who understands economics at a very core level, someone who is applying economics all the time, someone who is always on, someone's always on. There was never a time when Milton Friedman was not being an economist. If you talk to his close relatives, they will confirm this. He was always thinking like an economist. He understood the basic, the intermediate, the advanced. He knew history. So if you read his monetary history of the United States, he's not just someone who said around proving theorems. He knew the world intimately. And on top of it, he actually changed policy. So put that all together. And that's why I consider Milton Friedman to be the greatest economist of all time. My guy is Mises. That's who my Mises, guy is. I like a lot, but he just has too much stuff that's just wrong. Milton Friedman has a few things that are just wrong. Like his philosophy of economics is just asinine. <laughs> it's, it's just, oh, uh, I read Karl Popper and that must be the only philosopher that could ever be read. So mm -hmm. yeah, all, all economists do is falsify things. It's like, uh, how much of what you have ever said is rem remotely satisfies that criterion? Hardly anything. So that was a, you know, he had a very silly philosophy of science. And then occasionally he would just make a dumb philosophical claim. But overall, as an economist, I still think he was the best of the best. Mises is someone who had some really good stuff, but then he also had a lot of crazy stuff in my view claiming that he can go and deduce all of this stuff from the axiom of action. You can't deduce it from the axiom of action, or at least, at least nothing very interesting. You can deduce a little bit. All right. So <laughs> yeah, man acts. So therefore man prefers to do something rather than nothing. All right. Great. And you can't even get the shape of the supply and demand curves out of that. Rothbard covertly admitted that in his Mises endorsed man economy and state, but not till chapter eight, where he contradicts chapter one. 
<laughs> wow. I didn't notice the contradiction, but I, I have. Yeah, read so it. Rothbard actually does admit that you could have a backwards bending supply curve, even though chapter one purports to prove that that could never happen. Oh, wow. That's, that's right. interesting. Ideologically, look, can you imagine a person who just uh, like a teenager, all the only reason they're working is to earn a thousand dollars to buy a car. Can you imagine that person exists? Sure. All right. Well, guess what? If their wage goes up, do they work more? No. no, they work less. Yeah. It's logically possible. You can't prove using the axiom of action that that won't happen. So what are they talking about? Well, there's some food for thought. You might have. You I mean, might so be in my view, so I do have, I, I've got, a, I have several pieces on Mises, some positive, some negative. My view is his greatest contribution is actually not in pure economic theory, it's in political economy. So this piece called, Mises, I think it's Bastiat Mises, Public Opinion and Public Choice, right? So what's really great about Mises is that he understands why we have bad policies. It's not primarily because of lobbying. It's because the public is economically illiterate. Well, that's true. Great piece. Uh, you know, well, he's great on this stuff. He and Bastiat both. And then I wrote a piece where with Ed Stringham where we actually won a big prize for the article, which seemed to violate a law of nature. It's like, wait, I wrote an article in the review of political economy and now we're getting a big cash prize for it. But anyway, that's Ed Stringham's a professor right here in Connecticut. I met him. Ed yeah. Stringham. I actually had yep. lunch with him yep. in, in, here in Connecticut. Yep. yep, he was my student 25 years ago. Wow. Ed. Now you mentioned BF Skinner, and I got to get your take on this. <laughs> BF Skinner, now he he's a guy he believes in complete environmental determinism. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yet he writes. And I find with determinists, this almost invariably mm -hmm. happens. They start making suggestions. We should do this. We shouldn't do that. They write as if people are free to choose things mm -hmm. while they're claiming complete determinism. Mm -hmm. Now, when you come across that with your logical mind, does that drive you up a wall? That type of like, it just to me, it's blatantly contradictory. It's not unique to Skinner. I just, you mentioned him. So I figured mm -hmm. I'd use him as the example. Right. So the thing that I think is contradictory is when the pure determinist says that someone is doing something morally wrong. Oh my that's God. that's one where it's like, well, you never say a rock is morally wrong. Yeah. You wouldn't say a snake is morally wrong. It's too dumb to know the difference. But why do you say the human being is morally wrong? And that's where if they're consistent, they'll say, well, it's not literally true. I'm just saying it in order to go and change their behavior. The reason I'm morally condemning you, not because, in fact, you had any free choice in the matter, but it's just because when I say, you moral monster, I'm hoping that it will stop you from going and killing the children or something like that. So they do have a consistent way of explaining it, namely noble lie. But even the and concept of noble implies morality yes. and it implies choice. Well, so here's the thing. So in moral philosophy, the distinction between judging the states of affairs as being good or bad versus judging acts as being right or wrong. And a common view is, well, like we can say things are good or bad, but we can't say things are right or wrong. So like, you know, it's, it's better, for example, if a million people don't die. The, but it does not, you know, you know, even morally better, but it does not mean that it is wrong for a person that for any, for the person that kills and to kill them because they couldn't help it because nobody can help anything. But anyway, uh, normally what a smart determinist will say is look, I'm determined to go and bother you and you're determined, yeah. you're determined to go and be bothered by me. And it's all just that, determined. Uh, David yeah. Gordon explains it uh, is that the fact that 
something will, so let me post like, let's see. I think you know, the way that he explains it is that there's a difference between uh, something is definitely going to happen and something is going to definitely happen no matter what I do. Right now, what the determinist just needs to say is something is going to happen, not something will happen no matter what I do. Uh, if it was true that the same thing would happen no matter what you did, then you'd have no reason to act, uh, even if you were determinist. But a determinist could say, well, look, something's going to happen because I'm determined to make it happen. All right. Professor Brian Kaplan, latest book. You will not stampede me, right? Essays on Nonconformism. Right. And this book, yes. just like all of my other books, you can get on Amazon. All my books of essays are dirt cheap. You can get them each for 12 bucks in the paperback or $9.99 ebook. I think that it's a great deal if you like listening to this kind of stuff, talking about these ideas, fun books to buy. Of course, uh, my big book in immigration is Open Borders. That is the book that made me a New York Times bestseller. And that's why I oh, and that's why for the rest of my life I can introduce myself as New York Times bestselling yeah, author, Brian Kaplan, because I was on their list for it, a month. And where can people all, find you? If they're, uh, where can people find you? I mean, on, on uh, the internet. Right, so my website is just bcaplan.com, B-C-A-P-L-A-N.com. And then my substack is betonit.ai. Awesome. Thank you so much for a great discussion. All right. Lots of fun. Great talking to you. For now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Till next time.